0: Welcome to Asbury Pod with Amy Quinn and Joe Walsh. Today we discuss COVID vaccines with Dr. Terry Schlimbaum, Chief Medical Officer of the Community Health Center of the Visiting Nurse Association of Central Jersey, and we ask him the vaccine questions we all want answers to. Starting with, should we get the vaccine? Spoiler alert: Yes. What are mRNA vaccines? How important is the second shot? Will we still need to wear a mask after we are vaccinated? Spoiler alert: Still yes. Welcome, Dr. Schlembaum.
1: The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the Deputy Mayor of the City of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official City of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body.
0: Their interviews
2: always hit the mark, so subscribe to Asbury Park. I mean pod. Be informed, don't be in the dark. Everybody listen to Asbury Park. I mean pod. Everything you need. Brought to you by Amy and Joe. If you're local, they're the pod for you. But Bennies are welcome and Shoebies too. From Route 35 to Convention Hall, Sperry Pod covers it all. As Berry Pod, I love you. I love you.
1: Good morning, Asbury Park listeners. We're actually doing this show in the morning. And um, we have a very, very special guest with us, Dr. Schlimbaum. Did I say the last name right on that one? OK. Absolutely. Who's going to get Asbury Pod and all of our listeners up to speed. Um, and just so you, you know, uh, Dr. So we tape this. Um, part of the reason we tape this is I'm on the Asbury Parks. I'm the deputy mayor here in Asbury. So if I say something inappropriate, I need a day for Joe to delete it, and then we air it so I don't get grief for doing this podcast. So um, so we will likely air this in a week or so after we've made sure that I have not said anything that's going to get the city sued, even though I do a disclaimer. Um, but want to thank you tremendously for taking the time um, to get us and our, and our listeners up to speed. Um, very, very excited. You are the first doctor we've... You're the first
0: doctor. Wow, sure. I think so. I think the I'm first person, the first the first guest with any real credentials. I think so. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well,
1: we have to think about that because are we putting anyone down? Do we have any? Oh,
0: yeah, I, didn't mean, yeah, I didn't mean that <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I didn't mean as an insult too. I to think
1: that would throw.
0: We'll delete um, that. <laughs> yeah,
1: Dan Jacobson was an attorney. Anyway. Oh,
0: that's true, yeah. But
1: um, anyway, I digress So welcome everybody, welcome, welcome. And um, uh, doctor, if you don't mind, would you mind just doing a little? I know a little about your bio, as does Joe, as well. But if you don't mind, just kind of talking about, you know, where you went to school, what drove you to be a um, a doctor, and and give um, our listeners just a couple minutes on on who you are and what you're about.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. And uh, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be the first physician. <laughs> I first and foremost, I'm a family physician. I trained at uh, New York Medical College many years ago, and I did a residency in family medicine in Hunterdon County at Hunterdon Family Medicine Residency Program. At that at that point, I went into private practice for 13 years with uh, with two partners, and then after that, I was uh, I, I was became the medical director for the outpatient teaching sites for our family medicine residency program, the one that I went to, Hunterdon Medical Center. So I did that. For, that's the biggest part of my career. All the time, I have seen patients on an ongoing basis, with the exception of the last few years. In the last, uh, I then went more into administrative medicine as the the uh, chief of primary care for Summit Medical Group, large multi-specialty group in the in the state. And then I went into the insurance business for a couple of years. I hope this doesn't offend anyone, but I uh, lovingly say that that was sort of the dark side of my career <laughs> <laughs> uh, as the medical director for two two insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And I did that for the last couple of years. But I really feel like I found my home I, uh, in the federally qualified health center world back on the provider side. Very happy to be there and uh, fulfilling the mission that I think that uh, I've I've always really wanted to do. When I was in academics, of course, we were serving an indigent population for the most part. And uh, of course, that was very fulfilling. And nice, but it's it's great. I've always kind of looked at federally qualified health centers like the VNA and uh, admired them and admired the mission. And so uh, now in the back nine of my career, I'm really where I want to be. So it's I find it to be extremely fulfilling. And uh, and you know I'm just I'm lo- loving being here. I've only been here four months.
1: I also have to give a shout out to Shannon from the Asbury Park VNA who put us in touch. I'm, I adore Shannon. She's um, salt of the earth, lovely. So I want yes. to give her a quick shout out. And, and doctor, um, where was your practice mainly?
2: My practice was in Hunterdon County. I had two up. Well, I started in Califon, which is, in, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with That part of the world, but I've been uh, I've been lost in (laughs) Califon. Have you really? uh, (laughs) So uh, I was in Califon for 13 years, and then uh, my two offices when I was teaching were in Milford and in Lambertville.
1: So, so I read about Lambertville, which and. and one, I love Lambertville, but two, I also and and I'm not sure how familiar you are with Lambertville, but I love your mayor in Lambertville, Julia, um, whose name I'm now drawing a blank on. Who's actually a good friend of mine, Mayor Julia. Uh, yeah, no, she, well, he, well, here's why I'm going to say something interesting about Julia. So Julia, and I only say this because I'm involved in politics, but I I know the game well. Julia, a couple years ago, her and her partner Carrie were trying to get people to run for mayor. And then um, they couldn't get anyone to run for mayor, which is really, you know, par for the course Mm -hmm. in small town politics. And so Julia runs. Nobody thinks she's going to win. She wins. She's like profiled in the New York Times. She's like in her late 20s Um, and she she kills it and she wins, which is like uh, your first time running for office. It's a rarity. So anyway, I have a soft okay. spot for um for Lambertville and, and, well, uh, and I, I
2: don't know. I don't know, Julia. I know the story quite well, but I did a lot of work with the previous mayor Del Vecchio. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we we were not only were, did he come to our practices, but, uh, you know, we did a lot of good work in Lambertville and uh, I, too i love Lambertville, love 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 Lambertville, and french Frenchtown.
0: that's yeah,
1: nice. yeah yeah no and her last name is fall i don't know why i paused on that julia julia fall anyway i digress on that topic for a minute and i'm
0: off. doctor I, I, have a, I have a question about the federally qualified health um uh, clinics like the vna you know what are what is the mission of of, of the vna and what do they do you now I've, I've had some experience with the vn the visiting nurse association like they you um, they do everything, you know, they took care of the VNA here, took care of hospice for my mom back in April, but they're also on the front line of a lot of uh, healthcare issues. So all during this COVID crisis, the VNA has been open and operating and on the front line serving um, a wide range of clients. So what, you know, what does the V, what do VNAs and the federal health, uh, the FQHCs do?
2: Our mission is to to uh, to give the best healthcare we possibly can to the underserved population. And, um, you know, and for the the most part, I mean, it is one of the reasons why I I took this job because they, the VNA through a lot of the work that uh, our, our CEO, Christopher Wren has done, has has really, really expanded what what has happened. And so we're an expanding operation and doing the doing the good things that need to be done for the underserved population. Um, And you're right, COVID changed the world, not only testing wise for us, but also vaccinating and literally we put together a, a huge program to test and now to vaccinate uh, and, you know, that we're very proud of. But it has been, as they say, like fixing the airplane while it's flying. And we we have just done, in a, in a space of about a month, put together an amazing, amazing machine to be able to meet the needs of the community. So we're we're very proud of that and uh th- the unfortunate part of that is we've had to devote so much of our staff and our time to doing this that uh, i think we've taken our eye off the ball of doing our our regular mission which is uh, seeing patients all the time so uh not that not that we're not i mean our our offices have stayed open and and we are fulfilling that mission but it it's it's been very very difficult to to staff it and uh keep things rolling the way they should so today actually I'm involved in trying to straighten out a lot of the things that that have sort of not been attended to while while we were out doing our vaccines
0: so um so Amy Amy and I asked uh we're interested so I guess we, you we we uh sought you out today to sort of help, help with uh, COVID information, vaccine information. So we're in the middle of this huge national worldwide vaccination drive, and there's a lot of information out there. So we're going to, you know, um, so Amy, should we dive into it? Uh, you, uh, go,
1: let's go for
0: it. So we had, a, you know, we, 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 we thought about a couple things to ask, and what do people need to know about vaccines? And, but the first thing I wanted to ask, you know, as a physician and science communicator, um, you know, are you suffering in the same way the rest of us are from information overload? You know, there's a lot of information, you know, social media makes every thought that someone has uh, right. you know, front and center, which makes things very difficult. So how, as a professional, do you keep track of all this fast-moving COVID data? You know, is it overwhelming for you also? And, and, and for lay people like us, you know, do we have any tips to separate, help separate useful COVID de- uh, data, like da- vaccination data, from information? You know, do we, are there sources that, you know, you would naturally trust more than others, etc.
1: This sure. pandemic has made everybody who has a Facebook account a police officer <laughs> or a doctor, right? You're either reporting people to me or you're telling me why all these other people are wrong. And, and often they have neither one of those degrees or certificates. They're, everybody's an officer and everybody's a doctor.
2: See, not only do I get, get those questions sort of from, from patients and from uh, the community, But I also have to answer to my wife, who is uh, constantly hitting me up with, uh, you know, what what about this? Now we had the vaccine and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I have to watch what I what I say and make sure because she'll check it out with her her uh, siblings and and get back to me and say, you know, well, you know, they they didn't. they, they didn't confirm what you said, and that something else on the internet really said, you know. And, and so I really have to watch what I say, and uh, I, I kind of kind of get a little bit of a training session uh, when when that happens. Because you're right, it is just crazy. Because I I come home after doing it all day long, and then she's got a million questions. So everybody everybody has them. So um, in answer to your question, uh. I'm exposed to a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of medical uh, websites and so forth and conferences that I do on a day to day basis. In other words, I I probably have four or five conferences every single day, and that could be uh, the Department of Health, the CDC, uh, local kinds of, like uh, county, county DOH kinds of things. Uh, and and so a lot of that turns out to be um, I would say a lot of it's redundant and it's hard, hard to separate out what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. So a lot of the times I'm I'm just picking up little tidbits here and there while I'm kind of partially listening. Uh, but I, I I, mean, my sources are really the CDC, New Jersey Department of Health, New Jersey Hospital Association. Uh, we have a primary care federally qualified health center group that I, you know, I, I attend their conferences. And so those those are areas. But then the other part is journals. Journals and, and uh, other uh, WebExes, conferences, and so forth. So it's a it's a lot it's a lot of stuff, but um, you know you've kind of find your way after a bit. You kind of say, well, I can I can jump into this. <clears throat> I found this one to be helpful, and so forth. So um, I don't know if uh, if the internet kind of uh, affords you that opportunity necessarily as a as as a non medical person, but uh, dot, there are some areas that I I suggest that that are really good information websites uh, like the American Academy of Family Physicians, dot, or that's AAFP.org, uh, tremendous patient education materials there. The CDC has uh, very good stuff for uh, for non-physicians. Mayo clinic has the same thing and um you know so those webmd is a very good site as well but uh, you can have, pretty much re, pretty much rely on those
0: things yeah yeah i do have problems with that webmd though cuz you know I, I used to be a symptom checker with webmd and <laughs>
1: okay
0: and so just a, if you're listening when you go to webmd it's it's i'm telling you in advance it's probably not cancer you know cuz <laughs> No. Yeah, yeah, learning, I agree. I agree. Learning from experience, but um, <laughs> well, it, the information is interesting. So, I, I you know, because I work at the um, I work for Rutgers University, not that I'm an, a, a, a science academic, but I see a lot of science coming across. I have resources at the library and then um, friends who recommend journal articles, and even science moves a little bit slow, so the news media does not. So, science can produce. Two articles suggesting completely different outcomes and they both hit the headlines. And the problem is science hasn't had a chance to work this out. Like so we see uh I see two articles recently. One was a complete doomsday scenario saying COVID's gonna pr- reduce a, uh, produce a uh a permanent one percent reduction in world population. The other one's like, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna fade away to be like a common cold over you know a generation. And so both of those, you know, came from scientists, but it's gonna take a while for science to figure out which one of these poles of information is correct, but yet both hit Twitter like, oh my God, or like, don't worry, in total panic at the same time. So. Uh, oh,
2: I, I, yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on with that. And separating that out is extremely difficult. I, you know, I, I share the frustration that people have. I, what I, you know, I may have read a journal article and really be knowledgeable about a study that was just done and then to see it, in the press and the way it was interpreted is sometimes you know i find sometimes very concerning sometimes it's right on the money yeah. but uh, but a lot of times it's not you know or it's just it's presented in a way or maybe even in the part of the paper in a, in a way that uh, it, it's
0: troublesome yeah those papers have a lot of footnotes that you have to go through
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and
1: one thing I'm going to say on a local level that 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 continues, you know, and I'm sure you feel it as well doctor is so when this started testing was the was the issue in VNA, you know, came out early on in Asbury Park with testing, the county really stepped up with testing, but we had limited tests and limited tests and limited tests. And through the summer, we seemed to be okay, it died down a little bit and then back, you know, in the fall, we started, you know, we were doing this this testing at uh, i know the vna was doing testing and the city was doing testing at the transportation center and then we started seeing the lines kind of build back up in terms of people trying to get testing and seeing a little bit of the same with the vaccine in you know kind of um a lack of it right a lack of testing and a lack of uh, a lack of the vaccines i wondered if you could kind of if you could just talk to us a little bit about what you're feeling at the vna i assume you have the same frustration in not having um, enough vaccines for the number of people who want them.
2: Uh, definitely, we have ratcheted up our our initiative, our operations, so that we're able to vaccinate in the in the range of about 850, 900 people a day. That's really as of about I would say five days ago, because we've been expanding and getting getting the staffing that we need. Educating people about the process, and so just just as of about five days ago, we we're really up to that level at this point at our at our four sites, and and along comes the notification yesterday that we're going to get probably uh, one fifth of what we uh, the vaccine allocation that we had requested. So it's like hurry up and and. Uh, then drop back, you know? So uh, yes, it, tremendously frustrating. We're gonna, probably unless we get more vaccine, we're gonna have to close one of our sites, at least for part of next week until we get replenished. So okay. it's tremendously frustrating.
1: Yeah. So how does I don't even just so just so our listeners know, because on a local level, I don't even know how that works. So you ask the feds for do you ask them for all the all the different vaccines, one specific vaccine? And you say, I want three hundred thousand and they say, we'll give you three thousand. Just how does that right. process work? Right.
2: Just so the way it works with COVID and COVID is a little different because they're they, the record keeping and and the monitoring is really uh, very, very onerous. And, and so that's, that's part of the problem with the registration. Like you you're probably familiar with flu clinics where you just line a bunch of people up and they come and stick their arm out and we give them an injection and they go on their way. The, the COVID vaccine is different in that they are monitoring every single dose that is given. So yes, what we do, we're, uh, we have to register uh, with the New Jersey Immunization Institute to, to be able to uh, tell them exactly the number of vaccines we give every day. So we have people, and, and it's particularly cumbersome, I would say, from four sites to like be able to put all that in every lot number, everything. Now, that's normally done with vaccines anyway, but at this at this uh, capacity and this level it is it's just so onerous. And and there are, so so we have to do this every single day. We send, send the results to NJIIS and they, they keep records and then they say, well, you use this much this week. So this is how much you're going to get next week. And so it, it's sort of a catch 22 in that if they say, well, we're giving you 1,000 vaccines this week, and we have the capacity to do way more than that. We're limited. So we've done 1,000 vaccines, so they give us 1,000 the next week. <laughs> so it's very difficult to, to ratchet that up, you know. And then just about the time when you start to ratchet it up, then the then the supply is depleted. So yeah, it's uh, it's been very uh, very difficult. and And so the New Jersey Department of Health makes those decisions, but CDC is allocating it to them. So they have they have very little control at this point of of what they're going to do. So uh, you know, people are very frustrated pointing point, uh, pointing figure uh, fingers every which way, but in the end, we understand, you know, we understand the
0: whole situation. It's my understanding that there's a production, hopefully, uh, the Biden administration's got, the suggestion is that they're going to use the Defense Production Act to sort of mandate help on the supply side to increase the production, right? So I think the the shortages are really a function of the ability of Pfizer and Moderna to produce on a daily basis, enough vaccines to, to meet demand, which which at the moment they can't physically, right? And so, I think is, is the hope that down the, eventually these supply chain issues are resolved by expansion of production, or or do we don't do we not know that yet?
2: No, I think you're right. I I think you're right, and uh, so we should. I'm really hopeful that in the next few weeks we should see this loosen up, especially with J and J uh, and Oxford coming on. We we should be able to have a greater supply. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what that's going to turn out to be. Th- these are all questions that we we talk about all, every day. And that is, well, what happens if we get J and J? Right now, we have been given Moderna, and at the at this point, they're not recommending interchanging them. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of kind of stuck. And then the first dose, second dose situation is a very difficult one as well. Once once you give one, you have to have enough for the second one.
1: Right. So so that's what's also I'm assuming from a practical point of view, difficult for you all, because normally and with vaccines, give or take it's a one or at least with the flu, it's a one shot per year. Right. So working the second shot into the into the. Equation. I assume, from a practical point of view, is
2: difficult. Oh, yeah. I mean, we don't want to be in a situation where we've vaccinated a thousand people and we only have nine hundred vaccines for the second second shot. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really troublesome if if that happens. So we're good. I mean, it, we just have have to have enough for the second shot. So so we do. But then you might not have enough for the first shot. So that's the,
0: that's the yeah, um Yeah. That's an important thing, uh, you know, for people listening, how important is that second shot, right? So many people, many have already received the first, you know, how important is it that they, that they make the effort to go back to get the second, at least if it's well, for the Pfizer and the Moderna.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, I guess what I would say about that is, at this point, it's it's essential, it's completely essential that they do it, and and I base that on the studies that were done because they were done on two sh- on the two shot regimen. So the the efficacy is really based on that two shot regimen, and nobody knows nobody knows what what happens if you don't get two. I, I just recently saw a study that says that at least for Moderna. They think that after the first dose, it's 80% effective, which is very, very uh, encouraging. But I don't think we can, we literally can say, and, and that's another issue that, it, you know, a lot of people have questions about, and that is the emer- emergency use authorization we're not used to having vaccines that give give, uh, EUA or that come to us through emergency use. And I must confess, it took me a while to to wrap my head around it as well. It's saying, well, we've only studied these many people and we've only done it in these groups. And, you know, because we're used to seeing, it takes years to bring a vaccine to market. We're used to seeing everything being tested you know pregnancy uh breastfeeding blah 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 blah. but for this we don't have any we don't have any of that
0: yeah i think was that the, the the timeline for vaccines is years not months right yes. in, in ordinary circumstances um so right and that's why it, it, i guess this leads to why why you have to collect so much data because the longitudinal studies are still going on right we're still collecting exactly data exactly. on the fly yeah, it's interesting so I think I, I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Joe. Go ahead no, 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 no.
1: So I was just gonna ask a little bit. So and some of these questions, Doctor, bear with us are from people who wanted us to ask you these questions. So the one of the questions are people seem to be getting or seem to have more symptoms, flu like symptoms from the second dose than from the first dose? Is that I have not had either dose, so let me just be clear on that. Um, so can, can you can you tell us a little bit of, or speculate a little bit why you think that might be the case?
2: Well, you're talking to a person who just got the second shot and had the similar reaction, which was feeling, feeling kind of punky the day after, uh, both times actually, kind of fatigued, mild malaise, aches and pains, maybe a low-grade fever. So... Um, I just had my second one two days ago and I had the same reaction that I had with the first one, maybe a little milder, which is unusual because they you're right. The studies show that the second dose does tend to have a, a little bit more of a reaction. Having said that, um, you know, it's well worth well worth enduring a day where you just don't feel 100 percent. and. Uh, relative to getting the, getting, uh, the, dis- the, uh, disease of COVID, which is no picnic.
0: I, uh, um, I want to follow up with my, my college roommate, uh, um, is now a, uh, a physician at Mount Holyoke medical center in uh, Massachusetts. And he lives at this this disconnected world. He lives in the suburbs. like So every day at work, it's a small hospital. They have two or three uh, people passed from COVID. Then he goes home and people are having, um, barbecues. Right. And, and, and he's trying to the disconnect, but he said, you know, his response answer to the same question, he goes, whatever the discomfort is, it's an order of magnitude better than a respirator. Right. Or the, or ending up oh, with the illness. Absolutely, right. So, absolutely. Um, you know, so yeah. we, but then you know, we, but you, know, Amy brings up an important point. Cause we, we have two things going on. We have massive demand for the vaccine and also a lot of vaccine hesitancy. There's people who are fearful and, you know, there's some reason, there's some legitimate reasons for it. Uh, you know, you know, people are unsure of like a fast acting uh, vaccine. So, um, or, you know, do we have all the data, et cetera? You know, what can we say to the vaccine hesitant to urge them to get one of the COVID vaccines? I think we just, maybe we did. Uh, um, you know, you this, you know, maybe some of this comes from the misinformation about mRNA vaccines at Pfizer and Moderna are, you know. Uh, you know, there's some uncertainty about what that is and it leads to some crazy ideas about what MRNA vaccines are. And, um, and I, you know, in our previous discussion, you know, it talked about president Bolsonaro from Brazil saying it's going to turn you into a lizard. Um, I was hoping to be a marsupial. So lizard, you know, you know um, so, uh, you know, but you, know, what are MRNA vaccines? And if you're fearful of an MRNA vaccine, it's hard to say, uh, you know why shouldn't you be?
2: Sure. Well, M, uh, mRNA, <laughs> uh is uh, it stands for messenger ribonucleic acid, which is uh, a, a genetic strand. Uh, people are familiar with DNA. Well, RNA is just half of the half of the, d- the DNA. But basically, these uh, genetic pieces are uh in your body tell tell your body to make certain proteins and we live based on that enzymes etc etc so messenger rna takes the message from the actual rna strand from a gene and then says says to the body you have to make this protein and then we we live so uh you know that's how we get proteins. So an MR, mRNA vaccine is uh, I, this is such an interesting thing. I I think I, I I'm just blown away by the by the uh, how people figure this out. But the uh, mRNA for this particular vaccine is an M, is a strand of of protein which is injected into the body. And it, it says to our body to, to make a protein that looks very similar to the outer covering of the coronavirus or the spike protein. And when it does that, it causes your body to say, your immune system to say, this is, this is a foreign body and, and I'm gonna make an antibody to that. And, and that's, how, that's, how the, the, uh, that's how it works. Um, so yeah, it's it just a, an amazing, amazing process that they, that they did. Now they had, they had some background in this with, uh, the SARS vaccine, uh, there was well, the, the SARS research that they did uh, a couple of years back. And so they were able to jump on board with this, uh, pretty early on, but, um, but anyway so it's it's different from any vaccine that we've really seen before.
1: Can I ask a question also about that so there's there's two vaccines right now or three. There's moderna, there's Pfizer, is there another one?
2: well j and j is is getting well, let's say it has not gotten gotten emergency use yet, so and, they're there too.
1: okay, so and again, this is for my edification and because a lot of our listeners zoom. Are going to be my level of like dumb it down, doctor, so I understand what we're talking about. <laughs> so, so is it like is New Jer is New Jersey is VNA across the board using Moderna, and it's recommended that they not mix them up up with Pfizer. And if so, um, why it would s- logically seem to me the more vaccines. Whoever made them, provided they're they're good, um, we should take take them all in and give them out. But um, what I'm hearing from you is VNA is doing Moderna, not Pfizer, and and just is there any reason for that, or or how how, how does it get decided who gets what and not to mix them up?
2: We were just told um, at the beginning of this, you had the decision whether you wanted to be a distribution site, and then you applied for that. So then they told you and then they told you what you were going to get once they accepted you, um, you know, and so a lot of that had to do with our ability to store the vaccine, because as as you probably know, the Pfizer vaccine has to be stored at, uh, uh, you know, very much sub zero uh, uh, temperatures and is very, very difficult to work with. And uh, so so I think that's probably why most of the FQHCs got got Moderna. In fact, I think all of them did in, in New Jersey. Um,
1: and with the can yeah. I ask with the Moderna vaccine? So is that? So I'm also hearing, and and this one this is online, um, so so I did so it's not been fact checked. Um, so i'm hearing that places are 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 run are are taking vaccines out of i'm going to say coolers for lack of a better word and then when people miss appointments those vaccines are are being destructed or or not able to be used is that is that and again i'm asking to dumb it down because i don't know that much about it because right. i won't have right. of the shots
2: very uh, very tricky in that it has to, for our moderna we have to it has to thaw, so we can keep it in the freezer. But if uh, it has to thaw for two hours or an hour and a half before we before we can give it, then it comes in those do, ten dose vials, and we have to util, utilize that within a certain number of hours afterwards. And that's the that's the whole thing. We can't let it sit for for the like a whole day, uh, because then then. It, it's apparently not not uh, able to be used at that point or, or not uh, uh, not effective at that point. So that's the problem. So if you have, let's say, you have eight people lined up ready to go and you have two doses at the end of the vial and you don't have anyone else for the rest of the day, then you're going to end up wasting those. Those two doses. So that's why you hear people saying, "Well, I was on a callback list, and we they called us in right away." Uh, when when we were doing the one A, people like the uh, emergency responders and so forth, we had fortunately long lists of people who were very close to us who could come in and and get vaccinated to so that we would avoid that problem. And and so the the vaccine people in the state watch how much you ha- how much wastage you have very carefully so if your wastage is very high of course there are lots of you know horrible things associated with that but one of the things is that they say you're not not doing the doing the process very well so we're not going to give you more vaccine and I'm, I'm proud to say that we virtually have no wastage in the vaccines that we give because you know we have we've planned ahead, and we have people who are on call to be able to get those vaccines. Does that help you? Does that, does that pick, yeah, answer your question? Yeah, it's it's very very tricky. Other vaccines are not not like that.
1: One of the issues that that we're also seeing, and I mean everyone's writing about it, the New York Times. Um, I'm certainly seeing it on a local level is people coming to get the vaccines. So. You know, as parks a pretty diverse area, and what we're seeing is, and I think it's a combination of reasons. I think transportation, or Wi-Fi, or vaccine hesitancy, but but for um, for both testing and now vaccines, we're seeing less of our population, our people of color coming, and and more population of white people, and oftentimes outside of asbury because there's not a restriction that says you know only asbury park gets these if it's in asbury park so you know we've tried to figure out ways to to handle it i know vna has and and i've had several conversations with chris about it i think it's a really complicated problem that you know when when this passes and we can kind of all sit down and have a dialogue about how we do a better job to ensure um people with uh, issues with the internet people with issues of transportation people with um vaccine hesitancy uh people with distrust with the medical community people with distrust with the government you know if this dialogue to me if we don't you know if we don't have this dialogue soon or or certainly once it's safe to meet and have it it's going to um you know this is going to be a continued problem
2: right uh, at the... least oh, that's I... what i'm seeing yeah uh, it, it it's tragic. It really is tragic, and we are literally discussing this on a you know couple hours a day, trying to figure out how to how to do this. And you know, as we've expanded, you're you're exactly right. What's happened is uh, we ended up vaccinating people who are not really in our typical catchment uh, uh, population. And uh, that is tremendously unfortunate. And what we've ended up doing, and I know you, you've probably had discussions with Christopher about this, is trying to uh, identify people who are underserved, have transportation difficulties and so forth, and, and target them to be able to either go to them and give them vaccines or, uh, or develop certain scheduling techniques to be able to make sure that we have enough openings for those those people. So uh, in, uh, we are starting up, so we've had to do an internal kind of a process. So uh, actually on Tuesday, we will start outreaching to our vulnerable populations within our practices and have a, a whole separate kind of parallel vaccination uh, initiative for, for those people. So uh, we've targeted, we've got our initial subgroup is going to be about 500 people at, at uh, our four different sites combined. And uh, so we'll be able to give vaccines when people come in to, for a regular visit and they are in the eligible group. So we'll be able to do that on site uh, and then we are going to have what fairly typically are flu like flu like clinics right in our in in our sites, not the mega sites that we've kind of put up. So so we're we've had to develop sort of a parallel process.
0: What well, what I think we're seeing is um, a bit of a digital divide here. You know, the state is classified me as one C. Um, I'm not sure why, either because of my employer or you know under you know some other things, but. Yeah, and they gave me a list. They gave me two th- uh, an email. So this is maybe Amy, why we're we're seeing people who are not VNA clients ordinarily showing up. Is that so? They said either one, wait for us to tell you when your appointment is, or two, go to one of these sites. And if you click on the site, the VNA is listed there, and they don't have a priority list. They, so it doesn't differentiate which one you should choose. It just it's just there, and. Uh, so, you know, I live two blocks from the VNA. So that's the one I've been trying to get just out of convenience. So I wasn't thinking about, you know, the one in freehold or things like that. So I'm thinking people may be making location choices without knowing that the mission, of the VNA was to sort of trying to target a different population. You know, the state sent out a neutral list, any of these places. And uh, that may be, a, you know, I understand what they were doing, but you know, maybe there should have been a disclaimer, like, if, you know, VNA is not, you know, uh, you should, you know, if you're, if, if you make above a hundred thousand or something you should, you should be going to like Colts neck or freehold, location. I mean, you can't do that either. Right. So, um, so I think that's what you're just seeing is, and maybe a lot of our residents here, Amy, are just haven't even signed up for the vaccine site yet in the registry at all, you know,
1: yeah, so there's a, there's a few factors that we're seeing and Chris was on a call too, with pastors. So one, we're seeing a Wi-Fi issue and 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 the VNA and, and the city has actually now hired um somebody to call through um our housing authorities. W- one thing a lot of people don't know about Asbury Park, you know, we're kind of considered this bar-y, restaurant-y, hip city. We have six senior towers. We have a we have a large senior right. population that does not get um uh and we have a lot a large economically disadvantaged population that that doesn't get you know the cover of the new york times right the the arc gets the cover of the new york times but i say all that to say that we have a large senior population so we hired somebody to start... So they're on the phone, on the computer, walking them through the application process. Um, and that and that we started, I think, last week because we were seeing people who didn't know how to upload their driver's license or didn't know how to upload their insurance card or, you know, didn't have Wi-Fi access or they did, but they would get knocked off. So, so that was one of the things we're seeing that I think there's practical solutions to, right? You hire people, you hire staff, we hire people, we figure that out. But I think the really complicated aspect of this. And I'll give you an example. Joe and I know a young woman, she's in her 30s, um, a woman of color, a very good friend of both of ours, has a little boy my son's age. She has vaccine hesitancy. So the vaccine hesitancy has been, I don't want to say surprising to me, but a little surprising to me in a demographic of people I didn't think it was going to hit, like, you know, a young woman in her 30s. So that's been something that's far more complicated to deal with. The other issue that's been far more complicated to deal with, um, although solution oriented, is the transportation, as as Joe kind of mentioned. We have an easy ride that will take you. You have to schedule it. So the transportation, you know, there's solutions to to that a little bit. So I would say the vaccine hesitancy has been the hardest to deal with. And then the two other issues that have been the hardest to deal with, particularly in our communities of color, have been... uh, uh, distrust with both government and the medical community. Those are like three things that I can't hire somebody for to fix, right? I can't get easy ride to drive you. That that requires much more complicated conversations that um that I know you are you are having as well, Doctor. I know Chris is having as well. Um, some of the things are easy to fix, some are not.
2: Oh, absolutely. We we have an interesting, just sort of along those lines, it, we have a, a pretty significant Haitian Creole population that one of our providers in Asbury Park uh, uh, it serves and, and does it extremely well, has a, a huge following. And she came to me and said, these people are not going to be vaccinated uh, they have distrust and, uh, you know, so we said, well, what what we do. And actually, I think either today or Monday, she's going to be putting together an educational little little video, like two minutes or something like that to talk to her, talk to her people. Uh, unfortunately, we missed the opportunity for filming when she got got her vaccine. But the uh, that, you know. I think there will be opportunities to do to do that uh, for for our various populations. But she was very adamant about saying, you know, these people are very vulnerable and they're not going to want to get vaccinated. But uh, we all agreed that if she said to do it, that they would they would do it. So she's going to put together a a video. And and so it's it's kind of along those along those lines. Another another fascinating thing. It it may be a silver lining in lack of supply. And that is that if we only get a certain number of vaccines, we're going to have to close down our big sites and and just restrict the, the vaccines to our our population. So, I mean, that's that's something that we the executive team has discussed Really, as recently as yesterday, because when we found out that we're we're going to get very little vaccine next week, so uh, we're going to have to think about that and decide what what we do. Because um, you know, we we agree, and I it's disturbing to me that we haven't uh, haven't really targeted those the people that we're here to serve well enough with this effort.
0: The interesting thing is like, you know, in the African-American and in, in Latino and Native American communities, there's a cultural, um, there's a history behind this distrust that that is legitimate, right? There's a reason uh, for that that can be addressed. What I found surprising is that the data that shows that frontline healthcare workers from um, privileged communities are not going to opting out of the vaccine. And that's the surprising thing. You know, the people over in the front, you know, I saw some data from California health workers, a good number of hospital workers were opting out of the vaccine. And that's disturbing because we need to reach a certain threshold of vaccination for this to be effective, right? It's not just, you know, vaccine vaccines rely on, on everyone being vaccinated. Look, low levels of correct me if I'm wrong with low levels of immunity spread over the population. You don't get a single dose that makes you immune and everyone else vulnerable. Like there's a, it's a group effort uh, for it to work. And I think the data I saw that we need like 70% of the population to be vaccinated for this to be effective at any, any level. So to see opting out, you know, at multiple levels um, of of uh, or multiple sectors in society is, is quite disturbing. Because we so we have two things going on at once: massive demand for it, <laughs> and a good sizable chunk of uh, avoidance, which is you know troublesome. Right.
2: I Totally agree. Uh, it, I, I've wondered about this, and I don't know if there's been that much written about it. But for those uh, the healthcare people and first responders who have hesitancy. I'm wondering whether that could be, and I'm just, just thinking about this, that maybe they're a little more knowledgeable about vaccines perhaps, and maybe they have issues relative to what I was talking about before, which is the emergency use situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about the only rationale I can have um, I have been encouraged by a lot of people and, and many people on our staff, actually, who were hesitant initially and then saw everyone else jumping on and mm-hmm. and, and they have changed their minds and have gotten vaccinated. So, uh, you know, seeing that there were no serious complications and everyone did reasonably well. and 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 then to say and then to look at the bigger picture, as you mentioned, that is. That you know, this it's a it's a community service actually. If you think about it,
1: mm-hmm. I also wanted to mention one another issue that I'm seeing, Doctor, are um, housebound. So uh, people who are not able to get out of the house. Um, you know, some sort of steps that we're going to need to start taking in order to have you know for for you know go back to the days of doctors making house calls. If we can't get people out for these vaccine? Is there, is there some discussion on that yet? Or are you still just trying to get people who can get in? Or how's that Well,
2: work? we we have done a few, uh, much as we had done with the testing, we had done a few offsite projects. And I guess this week we probably have done, I don't know, a couple hundred of those types of, of things. But the problem is transporting the vaccine. So this is another issue you can't transport it too far. It, you have to do it in a certain way. You have to have temperature gauges on everything you you do. So it makes it difficult. Uh, we're well aware of that, and of course, the Visiting Nurses Association, the Health Group, our, our right. umbrella organization, and our that uh, the CEO of that group, uh, Steve Landers, Dr. Landers, has been tremendously vocal about about this uh, having written lots, lots and lots, uh, and been, I think he was interviewed on, on NBC that we're not serving this group. And and that's, that's their, that that's their population. And they are very, very vulnerable. So in answer to your question, that seems to have gone, uh, uh, I mean, there's just discussions about it starting to take place now and realizing that, um, You know, like like so much of this that we've discussed today it's just who would have known, you know, how could we to to plan everything and get it just right in the midst of this whole thing was just uh, so much, you know. But anyway, to answer your question, the that population is is clearly vulnerable and we need to get to them.
0: I think at some point we're going to see door to door vaccinations, right? You know, you're getting out and getting into people's eyes. or do we already I say that? <laughs> I had some I had some network interference. So maybe if I missed that, forgive me. Um, you no. Know, um,
1: and we're we're starting to get near near the hour, doctor. I want to just give you an opportunity to, you know, anything that we didn't ask that we should ask about or that you think the public needs to know about these particular vaccines or. Side effects or getting them or registering.
0: I have a couple of rapid fire questions and maybe we can get through with yeah. sure. Uh So, you know, we know there, what do we do about a mixed vaccine household? So some members of households are 1A and 1B and are, if they have not received or already received their second dose, they're, they've got one and they're going to have two and they're being put, pushed back into the workplace. So what advice do you give to those households? If one member is fully vaccinated, but their other members of their household are not, what precautions that does a vaccinated person still need to um, take to prevent bringing the infection home, so to speak, even though they are vaccinated? Because they can still transmit the, uh, we think, right? The, the the illness coming in and out of the house, even if we they're think vaccinated.
2: We, we think, yeah. yeah, we think so. It, it, it's much along the lines of what uh, the question that I was gonna suggest, mm-hmm. and that is, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, so in answer to your question, so I'm I'm one of those mixed households and mm-hmm. we're just following the rules at this point. The, those rules haven't changed. The guidelines haven't changed. I, I look forward to the CDC guidelines for uh, what someone does. Let's say, for example, you're fully immunized. And and I go to work and I have a a. a Significant exposure. Um, for whatever reason, what do I do? Do I do I report this to my employer? And what does the employer say? I think at this point, I, I, if that were me, I'm still quarantining for ten to fourteen days, I, and I, I think that's got to change. But there haven't been studies done yet, and. I look forward to those because that will give us sort of a pathway because at this point we're really pretty much stuck with the same old, same old stuff.
0: Yeah. A friend of mine is an ER nurse uh, in New York city. She's been on the front line the whole time and she's vaccinated, but she's still fully masked up, you know, in public, you know, when she's traveling to and from work and when she comes home, you know, all the clothes go like, I guess, they burn them, you know, <laughs> <from> <laughs> the, uh, so the, the, the precautions, like you still have to wear a mask after vaccine vaccination, correct? Or should su- suggest- we Okay.
2: Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and I, that's exactly what, what I would recommend at this point because we haven't, we haven't seen anything otherwise, mm-hmm. unfortunately.
0: Um. Should we be expecting like you know, the way things are playing with coronaviruses? Like, you know, the, the mutations are such, are so um, it's a bit, bit slippery. So we, should we expect that once we've you know returned to someone's semblance of normals normalcy, that we'd be we're going to be at, uh, taking COVID vaccine uh, shots every year, uh, in similar to the flu? Is that something we're expecting, uh, or is that um, n- not okay. yet known?
2: It's another thing. There's a dearth of ev- evidence on, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think people people know the answer to that. I think the um, the the research that had been done on on the SARS vaccine, or not. I keep saying the vaccine. They have a vaccine, uh-huh. but the on the SARS infection is that people had antibodies. They they felt that they had antibodies for about two years afterwards. Uh, how effective those antibodies were or are—I I don't think people know. So I think this is going to be another thing that we'll have to wait for the research to figure out. Uh, I also don't know with the efficacy of the two vaccines we have now in the ninety mid ninety percent range what that what that means uh, because that's that's so atypical for other. Vaccines, which are usually in the at best maybe fifty, sixty percent range. So, who knows? Who knows? I mean, uh, I I really don't know. I, I can't. Uh, I, a, I suspect there'll be a. We'll we'll need a booster somewhere yeah. along the line.
0: That's a great point you made about the sixty percent efficacy. Like you know, J and J. Any other year, J and J's vaccine would have been a, a home run. They're like sixty oh, something percent of efficacy, but it came after two ninety percent, which are so outside of the. Norm uh, that the J&J success felt like a disappointment, even though it's not, it's a one vaccine and there's a second one, they still have a second one in trial, so they could, they could end up with a two-shot uh, regimen. So the science on this has been pretty impressive and fast and you know, maybe there's good news down the line. And um, you and I had talked briefly before, emailed briefly before, so one thing you want to mention is what happened to the flu? Or do, are we still worried <laughs> about the flu? Uh, um, you know? Well, I, it,
2: it, uh, you know, extremely fascinating and uh i think it's a great public health lesson and that is uh my suspicion is because we're being so careful we're socially isolating and uh staying out of large groups and wearing masks that that's probably the way that and we have no flu we have virtually no flu and so i i think there's a great lesson in that and i wanted to just mention that because uh I, I think, you know, we may be in a situation after we get out of the COVID, uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, where, you know, starting in December, we start to wear masks to avoid the flu. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, flu flu is, of course, no joke. And we always, uh, it's very variable in the Northeast as to when, when the flu hits. I've, it's been as early as sort of thanks, uh, Thanksgiving uh, some years, and then other times it's as late as late February. So it's very difficult to know. Hopefully we're out of the, uh, you know, I suspect that we're not going to see much flu this year, although uh, who, who knows, as people get vaccinated, maybe they're going to be out in the a little bit more. And so it'll be interesting to see, but I, I just wanted to bring that up as a sort of a public health message.
0: Yeah, don't sleep on the flu. That's serious stuff. You know, uh, I listened to another science podcast at Lab. They did an interesting uh, episode recently about the flu, and something I did not know that the flu we we inoculate against today is essentially a variant of the 1918 flu. It just bounces around the world, changes a little bit each year. And I always had a sense that it was something different, and I was like, oh, I did not realize it's the same one. It just became a permanent feature of the landscape. It, like, it just its in, its fatality rates go up or down, and over time. And I was, you know, viruses, the science on this is bananas. I, you know, a little mind bending when you think about it, how yeah. these little invisible creatures float. If there was one shark in the water, no one goes in on the beach. There's a billion viruses in the air and people are like, I'm not going to wear a mask. So, <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: Beyond you know, but... the flu. So I have a, I have a five-year-old who's in kindergarten and prior to that he was in pre-K and pre-pandemic. And I was always sick, right? I was getting a cough or strep, or pink eye, right? I'm getting everything. Every these little vectors get get give out, and um and since the pandemic, I mean, make what you will. I haven't been sick once, nor has my wife, nor has my son. And, you know, is it because we're washing our hands and wearing masks? I have to assume that is because in pre K we were sick every other month with the typical strep, pink eye. What, well, you know, you I, we didn't get the flu, but we got, you know, the little things that, that kids pass around to each other like candy. Um, so, that, so that's certainly been an interesting. Uh, uh,
2: absolutely. And, uh, you know, another, well, I guess we're almost done, but I, one thing that's very fascinating to me also is the change in the access for, for, Sort of non-urgent procedures that are done uh, that people have been avoiding. So, an arthroscopy, for example, can't be done. And and what really happens? What you know? What's the impact? So, arthroscopy is always a is a procedure that has uh, always been concerning because it's one of the most common procedures in the in the country, and yet there's no tremendous evidence to show that it makes a difference. And uh, so. Fewer people are getting arthroscopies and finding that uh, it got better. <laughs> <You> know, so, <laughs> so I mean, I think there will be a lot of that. There will be a lot of that stuff when when the book is written. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, I think this will teach everyone a lot. Physicians, I think a lot about uh, all kinds of different things.
0: Well, I've been you know, my my I get an email every couple of weeks reminding me that it's time for my colonoscopy. And I'm like, Nope, <laughs> sorry. It's not, it's been a year and a half now. I'm like, no, that's not, not this year. And so, so maybe, but we're here. It's where the, what's the secondary effect of that? Maybe, you know, maybe I'm you know missing early detection of colon cancer. And so, we, you know, hopefully it's not happening, but we could see that kind of elective, you know, what are the side effects of, of the, uh, of, of COVID is that, you know, will we see an emergence of other, preventable illnesses. Right? Right, right. right,
2: right. You know, that wouldn't be one that I would <laughs> I know, I know, I mean, that's put in the, same, in the same uh, <laughs> box as, uh, as arthroscopy, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I hear you.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so we're going to wrap ourselves up and I can't thank you enough, doctor. I can't thank the VNA for for everything that you guys have been doing and kind of breaking this down in a way that that I think I understand it a little better and hopefully our listeners do. Um, Anything else you want to say, Joe?
0: No, I'm I'm going to add at the end of this, uh, when we put the introduction, I'm going to list those websites we talked about to follow up, um, you know, the AAFP, the CDC. So I'll put a list of the resources at the end of the podcast. Uh, So if you're listening now, stay past the end just for a few seconds.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Really, Uh, really appreciate it. Dr.
0: Simba, I'm really great. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. As promised, here are the websites for those organizations mentioned during the podcast. To find the American Academy of Family Physicians, go to aafp.org, the Mayo Clinic is mayoclinic.org, and the Centers for Disease Control are cdc.gov.